Hello and welcome to Cloud Ninefin. I'm Jack David, I head up ESG here at Ninefin, and I'll be your host today. Today I'm joined by Sukhvia Basran, a partner at Cadwallander, and Alex Smith, a finance lawyer specialising in sustainability. Sukhvia has a wealth of experience as a banking and finance lawyer. She's co-chair of ESG at Cadwallader and runs the London ESG practice. She is also sustainability counsel at LMA and independent chair of the 2X Global. Alex also advises clients across multiple industries on a variety of financial transactions, focusing on private credit and direct lending. A focus of her practice has been on sustainability for a number of years. Thank you both for taking time out of your busy schedules to chat with me today. We'll be speaking about how ESG has played out in 2023 and how the legal world is responding to this. We'll cover topics such as data challenge, uh, how ESG may affect a company's access to debt, with a focus on how approaches may differ between private credit and the syndicated market. It's been a fairly turbulent year, both in the, in, in the world in, in, in general and of course in ESG. The view at Nifin is that despite the geopolitical backdrop and pushback we've seen in the US, the wheels are in motion, especially for the long term. There's a clear trend for sustainable finance. If companies aren't engaging in sustainability, they're going to lose market share and find access to capital increasingly difficult. So is this a sentiment shared in the legal world? Thanks, Jack. And, and you know, we covered some of these points um, last week as well. So it's interesting, um, you know, that these are the sort of front and centre of everybody's mind. And there's a few layers to these question, this question. So 2023 has clearly been, you know, quite a choppy year, no doubt, for sustainable finance and investment. Um, but before this, we'd seen, you know, years of exponential growth, um, including after COVID, an increase in the S-focused finance and then 2022 was far more challenging with the wider geopolitical factors and economic outlook um, affecting sort of issuance of sustainable finance debt and also ESG integration. Of course, the energy crisis um, really played uh, a big part in that. So we have you know, seen a drop in labelled products, um, but it's worth pointing out, and this is particularly relevant to social focused finance and investment, but this is that not all sustainable finance is labelled, um, and particularly in the emerging markets. Uh, and overall, taking all of this into account, although there's been a year in, year or year decrease in, in labelled products, sustainable finance and investment still on the on the rise. And I think it's worth just emphasising that this is partly due to uh, the evolution of the sector. You know, regulations increased and um, there's uh, sort of certainly increased scrutiny of labelled products, uh, greenwashing risk and, and action taken by regulators and other stakeholders in the ecosystem. Um, and as a result, you know, we see market participants taking a, a, a lot more, a much more sort of considered approach to the design and implementation and structuring of sustainable investment products and ESG integration and labelling. Um, and, and Jack, we discussed the anti-ESG rhetoric on, on the panel last week, and this is definitely something that the market's grappling with because the views on this are so divergent. I mean, in the in the US, um, it seems to differ depending on the political party in power, and there's there's you know there's different focuses on state level, uh, and market participants have to you know really balance these quite divergent views and ensure very careful communication in their sustainability strategy. But as I said last week, it's not just in the US. We've seen uh, sustainability becoming, uh, you know, a, a much more political issue in the UK as well, with the government delaying some aspects of the green strategy and the back and forth on the low emissions zone. But we can look at this in another way. 
um, ESG and sustainability is evolving and that evolution is to some degree, you know, quite necessary. So the anti-ESG backlash um, and, uh, you know, could be seen as part of a concern around the societal impact of climate focused solutions and, and commitments. It's looking at the S in ESG. And so this anti-ESG rhetoric isn't going to remove the need for companies to understand how ESG factors affect their business. Regulations continue to evolve. Uh, CSRD, for example, is going to affect over 11,000 uh, companies and directly uh, and, and also indirectly as part of supply chain diligence. And there's still pressure from stakeholders, including sort of more ESG savvy um, consumers. And then in terms of, of access to capital, market participants still need to respond to regulation and stakeholder demand. So they're focusing much more on ESG integration within the investment process as part of due diligence. And so consideration of ESG and provision of that data is still really important. So the engagement with borrowers and sponsors um, uh, you know, needs to continue and borrowers need to be able to structure this into financial products. Yeah, absolutely, and um, and um, we'll, we'll go on a little bit into a little bit more detail about the uh, the backlash shortly. But um, yeah, it seems like uh, aligned to what we're we're kind of seeing, despite this backlash, um, it is still going ahead, uh, and and you know, sustainability isn't slowing down at all. Um, Alex, if you agree with it, well, do, do you agree with this? Firstly, and um, if so, how do you think um, how do you think the legal world is is responding to a greater focus on sustainability? Uh, yeah, so firstly, I do wholeheartedly agree with um, everything that Zipiri said, and I'll be able to expand on this um, over the next couple of minutes. But it's a really valid question, um, the sustainability question and the greater focus on it, which is very much concerning a lot of law firms' management. So sustainability, as Zipiri alluded to, like legal practice, it's very multifaceted. So, and we see it as a tool for risk management. It's an element of fiduciary duty. It's the subject of the multi-jurisdictional regulation, which Zipiri mentioned, and it's, again, an increasing customer and consumer consideration. So sustainability is more often than not an aspect of any good transaction or legal advice in its own right and category. So in response to this greater demand and growing demand, and like accountants and consultants, most law firms are now really well placed to guide their clients through an ever-changing legal and sometimes litigious landscape. So market-leading law firms have dedicated and specialist teams with vast sustainability experience in their practice areas. And whereas like five to 10 years ago, sustainability sat solely within the remit of financial regulation and corporate reporting specialists, we now see a diverse range of sustainability specialists, including in restructuring and pensions. And there's actually a real growing market in sustainable litigation funding, um, which is like fallen out of environmental litigation funding. And as much as there is a huge demand for it, whether for um, the reasons growth of the investment in the area for other concerns, also meeting this demand for sustainable legal advice or legal advice in respect of sustainability are some incredible not-for-profit organizations and industry bodies who have promoted the need for sustainable legal advice and continue to provide up-to-date user-friendly resources and precedents which have been hugely instrumental in the growth of sustainability within legal practice so to name a few which we regularly interact with and come across in sustainable finance the climate bonds initiative chancery lane project net zero lawyers alliance and of course lma and icma and in line again with what Sukhvir said, as much as there is a move towards standardization within sustainable finance and the advice and transactions, clients still need bespoke advice on their deals from lawyers who understand the underlying fundamentals, the issues, the opportunities. And this demand is only going to increase with the innovation and growth. And ESG and sustainability is an area which is ripe for innovation and growth. 
So then finally, I think the aspect of this question is um, innovative law firms and from a slightly different perspective as well. We are starting to now see law firms themselves becoming the subject of sustainability scrutiny from their employees, from their suppliers and from their clients. Um, and many are now sort of having to look at how they themselves adopt more sustainable operations, engage with more sustainable focused transactions or clients, or at least start collecting the relevant data. Um, Jack, if I could just come in there as well, and um, it's going to sound like the Mutual Admiration Society, but I'm also going to sort of um, echo um, what Alex has sort of said there, because I, I think, you know, Alex has made some really important points, which I think, you know, just to pick up a couple of those threads, we've got to, you know, law firms have got to provide a multidisciplinary approach. And it's not possible and it's and it's not useful to sort of take a very siloed approach to advice. So whether it's regulation, a regulatory advice, you know, that needs to sort of then go go beyond that and look at implementation. What does that mean for you can't make disclosures under the SFDR if that that is not being reflected in practice? And, you know, the sort of collaboration and developing the market, that's also really important. Um, just picking up, you mentioned earlier, uh, Jack, sort of the, my chairmanship, uh, chairpersonship of um, uh, 2X Global, you know, that's like, like that's a field building organisation. It's focused on the integration of, um, you know, um, gender, a gender lens into finance and investments. And we're looking at sort of, you know, there's a, there's a huge amount of collaboration across the sector. And what, what what we're doing at our law firm is taking some of that information. Again, Alex has made the point about sort of the, the fun, you know, fantastic resources and toolkits uh, available, you know, from trade associations and NGOs. We're taking some of that sort of um, wealth of information and the impact focused and trade associations to our clients in, who are mainstream clients because there's a sort of a there's a, there needs to be a dialogue and a bridge between that both of that so we can actually you know create some momentum in some of these places and and share those resources okay yeah that's, that's really interesting um, and yeah it sounds like a, a very uh, worthwhile and um, impactful uh, initiative J just on on the theme of, of uh, sustainability being adopted more widely across uh, different industries and asset classes um Obviously, within within sort of sub investment grades, pr the private market, um, pr private credit has expanded uh, quite a lot this year. And um, our team investigated ESG within private private credit not too long ago, and our findings were quite mixed. Some reported that ESG is is really just a top box ticking exercise with less scrutiny um, and pressure maybe to integrate ESG than with with syndicated markets. Um, whereas others saw the closer relationships they were able to have with between borrowers and lenders, an opportunity to 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 really delve in and and uh, have greater impact. Alex, I know I know you work um, quite closely with private private credit and, and direct lending. Um, what's your opinion? Is private credit the the new frontier of ESG, um, or do you do you think in reality um, there's not as much being done in this area? Thanks, Jack. So I wouldn't say that private credit is the new frontier, as I think there have been some really large developments and challenges in private credit for sustainable finance. However, what I would say is that it's definitely the one to watch in light of its potential to scale sustainable initiatives. So um, market data from Prequin for Q2 and Q3 2023 saw the largest number of funds reporting under Article 8, light green, Article 9, dark green, SFDR standards. And within those, the largest aggregate sustainable fund size reported to date. There is clearly a growing appetite for sustainable investing within private capital. 
What's particularly interesting is here, private equity and private credit funds were found to disclose sustainability data to near the same level. And both of these um, metrics were only to be trumped by sustainable infrastructure funds. The last point is particularly interesting because when looking at private credit, because A, banks, large banks pioneered the sustainable debt market with huge resources, which private capital doesn't generally tend to have. And secondly, B, private equity has generally been considered to have more advanced sustained sustainability strategies than private credit. So by their structure and influence at board level, private equity deals provide the sponsor a greater ability to perfect pro-sustainability decisions and the collection of the relevant data. However, private credit facilitates quicker deal execution and a greater range of data collected across a larger number of investments, leading to faster building of data maturity, which is very much needed within sustainable lending. So these factors combined better enable private credit managers to spot trends and formulate strategies from experience for better insight and better long-term sustainable investments. So how do private credit lenders collect this data. So alongside the regulatory requirements, which we've mentioned, and investor information requests, one of the tools used to facilitate this data collection is the sustainability linked loan, which for those of you who aren't familiar, it's where the pricing benefit is offered to borrowers or issuers who report on their ESG data and achieve material and ambitious ESG and sustainability related targets. And the reporting from the borrowers can then be used by the lenders for their further regulatory or otherwise reporting purposes and the documentation which we produce and we tend to see and act on reflects this. So the pricing benefit acts a quid pro quo for the data. Alongside competing with banks as well, the private credit funds offer greater stewardship for debtors as a part of their sustainable lend, identifying areas for improvement through initial and ongoing diligence, specifically monitoring and mitigating risk and providing guidance and reporting through specialist consultants. So whilst recent political sentiment, which we've mentioned in the UK and the US, may be cooling on the term for ESG, this approach from lenders, in addition to the ongoing regulatory development, which we've mentioned, consultation with FDR, implementation of FDR, CSDDD, all of which predominantly concern private credit markets, this is going to ensure that there's a continued interest in sustainability. Fantastic. And on the topic of sustainability linked loans and linked bonds, um, Sukhvi, I know you've done a lot of work helping banks structuring these. Uh, SILs are coming under increased scrutiny, for example, from the FCA, and ICMA have recently updated their guidance on SLBs. Broadly, what we've seen in high yield is the issuance of SLBs and SILs hasn't dropped relative to overall issuance um, of bonds and loans over the past three years. Uh, but how do you see banks and investors reacting to this pressure? Do you think it's moving in the right direction? Yeah, Jack, I, I definitely think it is. Um, for, for, so from the conversations that I'm having with banks and private credit funds, they're very focused on trying to get this right um, and doing so um, through sort of correct uh, governance processes, sustainable product frameworks, which then go to align ESG um, legal and deal teams and, and the data and creating a sort of a really robust process when counting loans towards, for example, sustainable finance quotas or their commitments. And just sort of coming back to what um, Alex was sort of saying um, earlier on, um, I, I sort of really agree that it's sort of private credit's um, not the new frontier. When we look at sort of PRI recently publishing their sort of latest report on ESG incorporation, 
um, we can see that there's been significant progress in terms of ESG integration, particularly in the context of credit risk analysis and ESG value creation. Uh, and the collection of ESG data is, is far more widespread and there's a lot more climate related reporting TSFD and as, as, as Alex has said, SFD, SFDR as well. But coming back to your point in terms of what we're seeing um, banks and I'd say lenders generally in the market doing in this respect, you know, I, we, I, I, I sort of worked on a report for Alpha, which was published earlier this year on, um, you know, the, the evolution of ESG in the private uh, debt market. Uh, and as part of that, we can really see sort of the challenges, which are very well known in terms of data collection, trying to get the data um, and, and, you know, timing issues, as well as sort of really sort of creating um, credible structures around KPIs and sustainable performance targets. And I think banks are also really very focused on, on this as well. So the trade associations including ICMA uh, and the LMA, update their guidance and principles very frequently in response to market developments and also add to those resources as well. And we've got, so the ICMA's got the KPI registry and the LMA updated their principles and guidance, including the sustainability-linked loan principles, and um, also published the um, sustainability-linked loan um, model provisions earlier this year. And that's really focusing the market on, you know, what needs to be included in documentation, there's very detailed notes with those model provisions, um, how to actually design and structure the KPIs, the resources that need to be looked at um, for uh, definitions, uh, you know, defining uh, KPIs and including calculation methodologies, understanding the frameworks that are in place, ESG standards that can be used to sort of do that. And of course, the FCA letter that you mentioned, you know, of course, the regulators looking at these structures, and there are concerns, of course, around credibility and market integrity and greenwashing. And getting this important, um, this right is important for so many reasons. But overall, I think looking at the way that banks are reacting to this pressure and private credits, credit um, funds, you know, there's a lot more care and consideration of, in, in terms of structuring these deals and also making sure that that's aligned with ESG integration within the investment process and, and how that's being communicated. So I'd say, you know, definitely moving in the right direction. So if you're staying with you, so uh, fixed income it can sometimes be seen as the less exciting part of finance. It's quite steady. Um, and, you know, it's sometimes equities are seen as where, where are the actions happening, but uh, it's actually the area that maybe is seeing the most innovation at the moment within ESG. Um, are you seeing anything new in the market? I think Alex was talking about sort of innovation um, in terms of, uh, you know, it, it being important. And I think it's it's quite it's quite sort of crucial to sort of consider what we mean by innovation, um, uh, you know, here. And, and I think, you know, we've got green, we've got social, we've got sustainability linked, we've got blended finance, we've got the trade associations, you know, updating their guidance and thinking about transition financing. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about, about whether we need to sort of see transition focused labels or additional labels and, and, and new products. But I'd say we don't need a, a sort of a, a, a next big, big thing. We've got products, we've got ESG in integration, we've got impact. We have a whole heap of regulation, as we all know. We've got target setting frameworks. There's plenty in the structures that we've already got to encourage innovation. Um, what's really going to be interesting is how we use those products. Um, and, and how we can be more innovative around the processes and the systems to ensure that we're trying to really scale sustainable finance and investment, 
more effectively and efficiently and in order to have a net positive impact, decarbonising whilst also rising to the challenge of mitigating any unintended consequences, including adverse impacts on society. And I think we can also address the challenges around terminology and really enhance understanding of the interrelated nature of ESG so that the finance sector generally can have more impact. Yeah, I think that's fair that there's been so much uh, so much change in, in the few, last few years and, and so many new products on the market. I think it's, um, it's not necessarily a need for, for a next big thing right now. Um, Alex, how about you? Do, do you agree or is, it, is there something in particular that you've, you've seen coming that could be interesting? Yeah, I agree with um, Victor. I don't think, uh, I think we've got plenty of frameworks, we've got plenty of um, principles, we've got plenty of um, sort of rules and regulations for us all to innovate and work within and sort of on that topic, I think what we need to be doing is using the existing framework really make sure that we are scaling sustainable finance, making sure that we have really maximised market, got as many participants in really to move that just transition to a net zero economy. And there's, in this sort of vein, there's two things which I'm like particularly excited about. And I think we are on the edge of seeing broadly within sustainable finance in a much bigger way. And firstly, sort of following on from when we were talking about sustainability linked loans, I think what I'd be really looking forward or interested in seeing and seeing a couple of people talking about in the market is other incentives within sustainability linked mechanisms. So at the moment, the go-to is what we see is the pricing benefit. Um, when you're looking in the BSL market, it's usually a nominal margin ratchet, which is one way or two way. But taking inspiration from ICMA's latest round of Q&A guidance published in September this year, and given private capital's ability to innovate, I'd really like to think that we could start seeing different pricing carrots and sticks within SLLs and SLBs. Um, so some things which have been um, touted about have been investments in predefined eligible sustainable products, permitted acquisitions, which are toggled, toggled baskets for sustainable targets or assets, or charitable donations beyond business as usual. And the second thing, which I think would be really fantastic to see scaled um, over the, here in sort of Europe, would um, be green securitization. So the Climate Bonds Initiative and AFME have both been doing a lot of briefings and research in this area. However, it's not quite yet taken off in Europe in the way a lot of people were expecting. So notwithstanding the current political uncertainty, which definitely reared its head a couple of times in this podcast, um, in terms of the transition to net zero commitments in the UK, there is still a wealth of smaller scale, low carbon and climate resilient asset classes, which are growing and suitable for securitization. And some um, examples, green mortgages, green renovations and electric vehicles. And a particular transaction recently which caught my eye within this vein was the $130 million Sun King transaction, which was arranged by City for off-grid solar in Kenya where they were securitizing customers' future payments for solar products bought on credit on a pay-as-you-go basis. And I think this is the kind of transaction which, if replicated in Europe, could be really popular whilst facilitating that just transition to a net zero economy. So the themes which are coming out of green securitization and its scaling is that the current draft of the proposed EU green bond standard, which was designed to help scale up and raise the environmental ambitions of the green bond market, is inflexible with regards to securitization structures and it focuses heavily on reporting from the issuer as opposed to from the originator. This has in feedback um, been recognized by the European Parliament and the EU Council and a proposed compromise text with the use of proceeds framework applicable to originators could help spur this growth. A sort of final comment really, it's not really a next big thing, um, but it is sort of some food for thought and we are starting to see it a lot more commonly. But in quieter markets, which we are sort of starting to experience now, 
um, with lenders exercising more caution, having a good credit story and a solid sustainability or transition pathway is an increasing attribute to an investment. And I think in the future, if not already, it's starting to make differences to successful close. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, we're hearing uh, a little bit about um, linking climate transition plans to um, sustainability-linked deals or um, it's in order to incentivize companies to, to follow through on them. Um, and I know Client Earth, for example, is doing a lot of work uh, on this space in order to have those uh, written into covenants. Okay, so now I wanted to zoom out a little now. So uh, sometimes it's easy to get caught up in, in the targets and the ratchets. And, and I know we, we've talked a little bit about the, the, the big picture. Um, so of course there has been this backlash in the US, which has been widely covered. Um, we've, we've done a lot of coverage on it ourselves at, at Ninefin. Um, but it's interesting that it's come from both the right and the left. Uh, and and some, some on both sides of the spectrums, and some influential people are calling to the, to lose the acronym of ESG and and maybe it's it's not uh, the route forward. Um, do you think the criticisms on ESG itself are valid? Um, or do you do you think there's a bit of self-preservation going on here? Maybe that that nobody wants to go down with the ship, um, or is there or is there something else else going on here? Um, Sukhvir, let, let's start with you. So, so this is an interesting one, Jack. We we talked earlier about sort of the trade-offs that need to be made. Um, and, and of course, there's there's more and more data regarding the importance of, you know, consideration of ESG factors. Um, but, but this has re resulted in sort of, you know, it's clear that some of the asset managers and private equity firms and brokers have warned that the backlash itself, the divergent views could, could really hurt financial performance and adversely affect fundraise, fundraising. But I think it's it's quite important just to sort of look at we we discussed this last week was you know what does the ESG mean and how is this differentiated from impact? So ESG is really the criteria. It's a tool for evaluation which can be applied at a number of levels. There's consideration at an organisational level for materiality assessments and considerations, and there's analysis at the different stages of an investment process for KPIs, etc. But impact is much more. It looks at environmental and social change and the creation of net positive impact. Um, and this is now really, really important. I think we're going to get sort of much more focus on this next year. Um, you know, but but sort of coming to the to the question of you know is this. You know, is, is is there sort of um, is the criticism of ESG valid? I think it depends on sort of how we're using it. If we're talking up, and it doesn't help that we've got so much terminology that's being used interchangeably. I think we need to get a little bit clearer about these terms. And you know, the ESG is very different to impact, responsible um, investment is also different. So there's a, there's a need to sort of really raise awareness of these terms and how they're applying, being applied. So I think, you know, ESG is, is, remains valid. It's it's going to remain valid, but it, we need to sort of think about how it's being used and the fact that they're, you know, E, S and G are interrelated um, and, and will impact each other. And, and to your point about self-preservation, look, it's tough being an executive, right? So some are facing criticism for, for their purpose-driven strategies. And we've seen some well-known sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, heads been chopped, in, uh, you know, as a result of the failure to consider ESG. So, you know, there's a there's a difficult balance here. There's a difficult sort of, um, uh, you know, a balancing act to sort of, um, and particularly at the moment. 
Um, so I think, you know, we need to look at sort of this backlash as a chance to improve. You know, it's, it's going to allow us to really take what we're doing at the moment, take on board that criticism. You know, what does it mean? I mean, is, does it mean that we're not giving enough weight to the S? Um, you know, how do we integrate unintended consequences within our financial solutions? How do we sort of ensure that, you know, um, those who are structuring financial products are adequately supported and, you know, that we're actually using, bringing that as lawyers as well into our advice and as we're sort of interacting with our clients. Just to sort of finish off on that, the ship's not going down. You know, we discussed this last week. The ship is not going down. It's just that we are um, taking a more considered approach to the way that we are integrating ESG and much more focus on impact generation. Yeah, I uh, I think that's fair. And to be clear, uh, going down with the ship was was in relation to the acronym um, and and not sustainability in general. I think we're all in agreement that um, sustainability isn't going anywhere. Um, Alex, on to you. What, what do you think? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, I agree with it again. But I think the area which ESG aspires to cover is enormous and it's got so many competing intersections. So I think the acronym was always going to be a victim of criticism. And I think within sustainability and ESG itself, there is still a lot of misunderstanding, which in such a, you know, a relatively new area is to be expected. So related data um, and it's going to quickly touch on ESG ratings but um, and to be, be clear within private credit we very rarely come across the use of such ratings within transactions however these reports are provided by the ratings providers and they're commonplace prior to entry to a transaction or as part of annual reporting um, but there is a misunderstanding that high ESG ratings don't necessarily mean that a company is performing, performing more environmentally than its competitors but it can mean that it's at less of a risk from environmental factors and again not as a result of its particular environmental behavior so there was an article in the FT a few weeks back examining the ESG ratings market and ratings providers which is an excellent overview of the challenges and pitfalls of these ratings both in sophisticated and retail investing and in summary whilst also suffering from a lack of consistent and audited data which the entire market is suffering from such ratings are currently provided by unregulated firms they are commonly misunderstood yet can as Sikhle said wield huge power over investment decision making processes and consequently markets themselves so critics who have often taken front page of um you know publications such as Stuart Kirk and Tarek Fancy I think in a way they are identifying and calling out these behaviors as a result of this particular understanding and highlight an inherent issue within the acronym ESG and the market is now created itself and that's not that all ESG labels means it's having a positive ESG effect or any effect at all so whilst the acronym ESG continues to be really helpful to identify the baseline risks which form part of a sustainability risk or strategic assessment environmental social and governance the area has developed more accurate and specific terminology, like the tourism pointing to impact. And we can likely now leave ESG as an acronym behind and adopt more appropriate umbrella terms, sustainability. The area has expanded so much further than these three letters and spans complex ideas and detailed concepts, donut economics from Kate Rayworth, systems thinking solutions and dynamic materiality. I think the acronym ESG it now just sells the subject area a bit too short. Okay, so more that we're outgrowing the acronym of ESG maybe, um, and less so that we're winding back on it or uh, losing any any element of the, the overall agenda. 
or, or sustainability. Okay, so that's all we have time for today. Thank you very much, Sukhvia and Alex. It's been a pleasure speaking to you and uh, it's been a very insightful chat. Thank you, Jack. Thanks very much, Jack. <laughs> thank you to the listeners for tuning in please let us know if you have any feedback on today's podcast by emailing team at ninefin.com and be sure to check out next week's episode where we'll hear from uh, our colleague will cager smith on the latest on the u.s market